Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you all on a lovely sunny morning. A very warm welcome to any visitors. If you are new here, uh, my name's Andrew. I'm part of the leadership team. And as James has explained, we have been working our way through a series on 1 Corinthians. Started back in February, and we're coming towards the end, but it's been fantastic. And throughout these series, when I've been speaking, I, I like to liken... 1 Corinthians to a symphony. There are different movements, different themes, different tempos, but recurring motives coming through. And we'll be seeing some of those this morning, the, the importance of sound doctrine and the importance of living godly lives. Um, so, although we've still got a couple more talks to come after Christmas, if you like, they're the coda at the end, 1 Corinthians 15, I see is the crescendo, the chapter on the re resurrection. Um, yeah, although 1 Corinthians 13 is, is really good and much better known, 1 Corinthians 15, it's about the resurrection. It, as, as James said last week, it's of first importance. And we're going to continue from where James left off last week. So I'm really excited, but let's read on. 1 Corinthians 15 Verses 35 to 58. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just the seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendour of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendour of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendour, the moon another, and the stars another. And stars differ from star in splendour so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. 
in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with, the, with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour is not in vain. Amen. I could stop there really, it's just such a glorious glorious package passage but let's let's unpack it and have a look at it in a bit more detail sorry i've got the squeaky floor here move forward a bit and see what happens right as you know i like to look at the, the context of the passage and particularly the corinthian context as we said they were pretty mixed up bunch Although they'd had good foundations laid by Paul and others, they had a, a tendency to go off, off the message. And in particular, there was a lot of confusion about the resurrection. Some were saying, well, no, there, there wasn't such a thing. And this was in part because of the influence of Greek philosophy and worldly wisdom, questioning how can a body that's decayed, it's been in the grave, it's been buried, it's rotted. How can that come back to life? It doesn't make sense. And in particular, the famous Greek philosopher Plato, he held the view that everyone had an immortal soul that lived forever, but it was trapped inside a mortal body. So it was only when you died, the soul was set free, and you didn't need the body anymore, so why would you want to resurrect it? And there was this confusion and uncertainty. Despite the good foundations Paul had laid, they'd been led astray by this uh, erroneous thinking. And, and the consequent, and as a church, they were easily led astray and prone to be fickle, particularly where it meant they didn't have to live such godly lives. Or if we going to be raised immortal in a spiritual soul-like way. Well, we don't need to worry so much about how we live. And they were going wrong. Um, as, as James said last week, lack of belief in the resurrection was undermining their behaviour. So, chapter 15 is all about Paul putting them right. And the first part that we looked at last week is about the resurrection of Christ. This is fundamental. Yeah, if Christ didn't rise, if there's no resurrection, then Christ didn't rise. If there's no, if Christ didn't rise, what's the point of it all? We just die. We're to be pitied. But Christ did rise. He died, paid the price for our sins, and he rose again. And James set out the evidence 
for that last week. And if you weren't here, go online, look at the sermon, listen to the sermon. It's good. It's good stuff. Christ rose again. Hallelujah. Foundation of our belief. It's the gospel of first importance. And now in the second part, Paul's going to expand on that. What does that mean for us? Last week we looked back to the historical fact of Christ's resurrection. Now we're looking forward to our resurrection. And we're going to look at the nature of resurrection, the reality of resurrection, the consequences of resurrection, and the impact of resurrection. And as we've still got communion to celebrate together, I will try and be as quick as I can. The nature of resurrection. This is trying to deal with that point that the Corinthians were struggling with. Who wants a corpse resurrected? Nobody. Don't be daft or as Paul puts it, how foolish. And he uses an analogy from agriculture. When you plant something, you plant a seed. You don't expect to come back a few months later and have a seed come back to life. It doesn't work like that. The seed goes in the ground, it dies, but then, as God works on it, as nature takes its course, it bears fruit and it comes up with a different type of body. A a transformed one. So the the first thing Paul is saying is, yeah, it's not a straight, you're dead, you're in the ground for a time, and then you come back to life. That would have been really bad news for anyone of the early Christians and later in the Reformation being burnt. That's a bit of a tricky one if you're just coming straight back to life as you're buried. It doesn't work like that. Because God transforms us. Resurrection is transformational. And and Paul unpacks this in a number of, of ways. First of all, the dead body is perishable. The raised body is imperishable. I think, I think it's King James Version uses the word corruptible, which gives a better sense. Our human bodies are corruptible. We all are getting older. And as you get older, bits don't work quite as well as they used to. I think I've probably got more fillings in my mouth than original enamel in my teeth because they have decayed. I have to wear spectacles because my eyesight's not as good as it used to be. My body is corruptible. hate to cheer you all up on a glorious Sunday morning, but from the very moment we're born, we're all starting to die of old age eventually. Because our body is corruptible, it's perishable. But when we are raised again, we will have an imperishable body. No more toothache, no more headaches, no more things that will come in and spoil the body. It's not going to die. There'll be an end. We'll live forever in perfect bodies that Christ has given us, transformed from the corruptible flesh we have now. The old body is dishonourable. Hands up, anybody 
who has never sinned? Thought so. Only one man who's ever lived has never sinned, and that was Jesus Christ. We are all, to some extent, flawed, failed, sinful, dishonourable. And it's interesting, you go to a funeral, and very often people will give eulogies about what a wonderful person the, the late person was, how good they were, how lovely. But we all know, particularly if it's family members, they weren't perfect, they had their flaws. All of us do. And our old bodies are dishonourable. But when we are raised, we will have glorious bodies. Because God has wiped away all our sins, he's given us a new body that is glorious, made in his image. That is so fantastic. The dead body is weak. The resurrected body is powerful because we will have the fullness of Christ within us brought to perfection. In this earth, there's always that struggle as Christians between the Spirit of God dwelling within us, encouraging us to be godly lives, to love one another, to forgive, to give generously. And there's the old flesh that doesn't want to know, wants to indulge itself, wants to be lazy, wants to be selfish, wants to be mean. We are weak, but we will be raised in the full power of the Spirit of God given to us. The old flesh is natural. And Paul describes how it's because we're all descended from Adam, the first man. We have the, the, the flesh of humanity in all its flawed, sinful type. But the resurrected body is... is it's going to be physical, but it's spiritual because it has been transformed. David Pryor explains this quite nicely. Our current physical bodies are incapable of coping with the glory of God. We need to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. God is so holy so glorious, so magnificent, that in all his glory, as human beings, we could not cope. That's why Moses had to hide in the cave as God passed by. No one can see the full glory of God and live. But in eternity, when we're spending eternity with God in all his glory and majesty, we will be given spiritual bodies are transformed into the likeness of Christ so that we can not, not just endure the glory of God but enjoy the glory of God and worship him with a perfection that we can never even dream of in this earth. However good worship is here on a Sunday or at any of the big conferences or rallies, it's going to be so much better in heaven because as spiritual resurrected bodies we will truly Worship in spirit and in truth. So at the resurrection, we are going to be transformed. It's not just going to be the rotten old corpse brought back, but we are going to be transformed. And this is the glorious reality 
of the resurrection. These are promises of God. This is what's going to happen. First of all, we shall all be changed. You don't have to do anything special or accumulate so many points to get a better body. You know, a lot of these shops have reward points and the more reward points you get, the better quality of rewards you can earn. Jesus has done it all. It's a gift. It's part of the salvation package that not only are your sins forgiven, but you're going to be transformed into this wonderful new body. And it's in an instant. There's no time in purgatory that you have to clock up. There's no evidence in the Bible for such a thing as purgatory. But when Christ returns, the dead will rise and those who are still alive when he returns will be transformed, just like that. Fantastic. In the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed in an instant. And as I said before, it will be into the likeness of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we're all going to be walking around heavens, uh, heaven as clones of Jesus, all looking exactly the same. Uh, a 33-year-old Israeli from the first century. Uh, but we are going to be transformed into his likeness. And just as because we are human and descended from Adam, we have all the traits and characteristics of humanity, that means we will have the fullness of the character of Christ within us. We are blessed at this time that while we're still on earth, we don't have to strive to our own goodness, our own righteousness, our own merits, because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But that, if you like, in this life is a garment. In the next life, we will have the fullness of Christ dwelling in us. We will be transformed into his image, his qualities, his goodness, his virtue. Because he's done it all for us on the cross. That's so exciting. And it'll happen when Christ returns. Uh, Paul explains this a bit more in the, when he writes to the Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. It's happening when Christ returns. And later on we'll be meeting, we'll be sharing communion, which is something Christ established to remember his death until he comes again. And I think so often in this world we can get distracted by the problems of this world. Who's looking forward with tremendous enthusiasm to whoever will be the new Prime Minister on Friday the 13th? Shrugged shoulders. It's not very easy to get excited about the coming of Jeremy or the coming of Boris. But we can get excited about the second coming of Jesus. 
because he will return. We don't know when, so we need to be ready. But he is coming back and he's going to put all things right. This is a really exciting thing. The great consequence of the resurrection. Jesus is coming back and he's coming back in victory. And that victory is something we will all share. And and it's just, I love this stuff. First of all, there's victory over death. As John writes in Revelation, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Leon Morris, another theologian, writes, death is a malignant adversary torturing people. But Christ has drawn its sting and it is harmless to those who are in him. For people who have no faith, death is the end. Finished. Nothing to look forward to. And that's what makes old age all the more tragic for non-believers. This is all they've got to look forward to. Actually, it gets a whole lot worse because the Bible makes clear that for non-believers there is an eternity without God that is hell. But for us, who are in Christ, who believe, who have accepted his free gift of salvation, death isn't the end. It's a doorway, as C.S. Lewis described it, into something so much better. Death is not the end. Death has been beaten. And the sting of death is sin. And in the resurrection, Christ has established victory over sin. And when we are resurrected with him, with our perfect transformed bodies, we will finally be totally free from sin. There will be no temptation. None of the struggles we have in the flesh, whatever area it is. And we all have them. It might be a struggle with unforgiveness. It might be a struggle with bad language. It might be a struggle, struggle with anger. Sin surrounds us. It's ingrained in our human nature. And Satan uses every opportunity to bring us down. But no more, the resurrection has defeated the power of sin. And that must be so galling for Satan. God, let's go right back to the beginning, Genesis. God made this perfect world with a perfect garden. And he set in it the pinnacle of his creation, man and woman, to have relationship with him. And Satan hates that. He's jealous, he's angry. So he comes in, he seduces mankind, tempts them, they fall. And into that perfect world come Satan's two favourite weapons, sin and death. And mankind has been suffering sin and death ever since. And then Christ goes to the cross, the perfect Son of God, paying the price cancelling out the penalty of sin 
And three days later, he comes back to life and cancels the power of death. Satan's two favourite weapons neutralised by the resurrected Christ. We have victory over death. We have victory over sin. And so we can say, sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law but under grace. A free gift of God. Death is beaten. Sin is beaten. And it's all in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's done it all. He has conquered death and sin on the cross. And when he returns, we will share in that victory over sin and death. Because we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're coming up to Christmas and celebrating the birth of Jesus. But Christmas is only important in the context of Easter. That's why the baby was born. That's why Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus came to earth to pay the price of sin, to deal with sin and death and give us the victory in which we can share. Oh, that's fantastic. And we should and do rejoice and revel in that victory. But it has an impact for us as well. We're not just looking to a future date. As James said last week, there needs to be a reaction. And the resurrection, the glory of the resurrection, the impact of the resurrection, is that it should motivate us. Because we have that assurance that death is defeated, sin is defeated, Christ is coming back. It should encourage us to stand firm. Whether it's the Corinthians with the pressures of idolatry, uh, false teaching, the things they're struggling with, whether it's Christians throughout the Roman world in the first century facing persecution, whether it's us today dealing with the problems in our own life or the discouragement that we get from politicians and the world situation and the problems with the, the climate, we should stand firm. Because, as Paul writes to Timothy, if we endure we will also reign with him. That's part of the resurrection package. We are going to reign with Christ. We're not just forgiven. We are sons, adopted, and we are co-heirs. Co-heirs with Jesus who will reign with him. So don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Don't be dragged down. Don't be anxious about anything. But stand firm. And then there's an incentive to work for the Lord wholeheartedly. Death is not the end. Our activities in this life are not futile. It's quite interesting, uh, most people know I, I retired last year from the civil service. Civil servants generally don't go down in the history books as being significant unless they are absolutely exceptional. A lot of politicians don't, unless they're prime minister or they've held an office where they've made some monumental blunder. Very few of us will ever go down in history. and very, It's often very easy to think, I'm insignificant. 
what I do doesn't count for anything. I don't matter. But when death's not the end, when we've got an eternity in the presence of God, there's a something to look forward to. That eternal reward. That, what can be more wonderful than the Father saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because that's what we should all be aspiring to when Christ returns. We should want to say, as Joshua did, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Because the world, this world hasn't got anything that much to offer. As Solomon, the wisest, wealthiest man of his age, discovered and, and conveyed through, uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes, riches, pleasures, Self-indulgence, monuments, nothing satisfies. Only God satisfies. And the perfect place to be, whatever your circumstances, is in the will of God. And he has given all of us work to do. As we have seen, he's given us gifts with which to do it. To serve one another, to serve the kingdom, to serve the Lord. And we can do that because we have the assurance that our labour is not in vain. And again, Paul puts it really well when he writes to the Galatians. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, when Christ returns and we are resurrected, transformed into his likeness, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. God will reward those who serve him faithfully. And that's why I love 1 Corinthians 15. A quick summary of the wonderful truths in this passage. One, Christ is coming back. Hallelujah. Death and sin have been defeated. Hallelujah. We shall all, all be raised to eternal life. Hallelujah. We shall be transformed. Hallelujah. So stand fast. Serve the Lord faithfully. And look forward to an eternity of glory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And I love that old colic, the Church of England. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. And we too will share in that victory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the glorious truth of the resurrection. Lord, we thank you that at that first Easter, the crucified Christ was raised from the dead, the first fruit of all who will follow. And Lord, we thank you that we will be part of that harvest. And when Christ returns, in an instant, we will be transformed into his likeness. Lord, we thank you. We worship you. We praise you. And Father, in the meantime, we pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon us that we might stand fast, serve you faithfully, in the assurance that our labour is not in vain. Praise be to God. Amen.